Hello, everyone, and welcome to February's Trade Policy Podcast. My name is Daniel Neff. Today's podcast will be on the shorter side and act as a bit of a sneak peek for March's monthly trade policy update. And today we are joined by Cleet Williams of Aiken Gump. Cleet, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so jumping off here, I think we should start with the very serious and ongoing situation with Russia and Ukraine. Cleet, do you have any top line points you'd like to raise about that or maybe what's to come? So let me first just say it's it's a very sad and unfortunate situation and really feel for the, the people of Ukraine right now. Uh, I think that, um, you know, what has transpired in the last 24 hours has really been um, even more dramatic and far reaching than, than we may have anticipated. Uh, I do think that what you are going to see in the in the near term is a very strong uh, sanctions and export control response from the United States. Uh, that will be uh, coordinated with with many of our allies, and uh, you know, in particular, uh, what I do expect the president will announce shortly is going to be you know deeper sanctions on the Russian financial uh, sector and and some of the largest banks um, in Russia. I also think you are going to see a significant expansion of export controls vis-a-vis Russia in particular with the application of the foreign direct product rule for the semiconductor industry, as well as some targeted uh, export controls on on numerous entities within Russia. So I I really do think that it's going to be far reaching. Um, I also think it may just be the beginning. And and I think, you know, we need to buckle up here uh, because I think Congress is going to come back into town next week. They're going to want to take some action. And I think they're going to continue to put pressure on the administration to go even further than they are. Uh, so let me just say it's an unfortunate situation. It's a fluid situation. And, and I do think that there's going to be a lot of activity for companies to follow, you know, in the weeks to come. Yep. Thank you. And I agree. Very unfortunate, but uh, appreciate the perspective there. So now pivoting a little bit, I think one of the bigger news pieces uh, in, earlier in the month that we were following hadn't been able to touch on yet was the steel tariff deal reached with Japan. So I'm wondering, Cleet, you know, what are the similarities and maybe the differences there with the EU deal? Sure. Well, let me first say I think it is it is positive uh, that the two sides were able to come up with an arrangement uh, that would, you know, stop from applying, you know, a 25 percent tariff on the first shipment of of Japanese steel to the United States and then instead would adopt a a TRQ mechanism um, at, you know, 1.25 million metric tons. So a couple similarities and differences with the the EU deal. I mean, one one of the big similarities, of course, is that they have this TRQ mechanism, which I think from the administration standpoint is positive because they allow historical trade flows to continue uh, without any tariffs, um, which will help with cost in the United States and and, hopefully reduce the the price of steel. It'll help with the relationship with Japan. Um, But then they have the tariff kick in after a certain level, which really helps with any import surges or, or things like that. Um, and, and so in, in many ways, it was very similar to the EU deal in that they looked at what were the historical trade flows in 2018 and 2019, and they put a TRQ in place on that on that basis. You know, some of the differences here are, you know, for Japan, they didn't include the exclusions as, as, as uh, you know, well, they, they, they included the exclusions as part of the TRQ. And what I mean by that is that, you know, that any exclusions that Japan is getting would count against the TRQ. Now, that is, uh, I think, in practice, probably not as big of a deal as it, as it, as it may seem, um, because the bottom line is Japan was shipping about half a million metric tons, and now we're going to more than double that 
to 1.25 million metric tons uh, duty free. So I think that there's there's an expansion there. But that is one thing that was different between the deals. But the bigger the bigger difference really comes down to the fact that, you know, there is some horatory language in there about Japan wanting to coordinate with the U.S. on access capacity and on climate related issues. But they are not a formal part of the global consultation uh, on those issues that the U.S. and the EU entered into. And, you know, I think that's a disappointment, to be quite frank. I think that, it, you know, if you're going to actually implement border measures related to climate as it pertains to steel, you know, you need to have all countries bought into that. I also think that countries do need to coordinate if they're going to work together to address the problems of Chinese excess capacity. But my, my understanding from, from commerce folks uh, is that there was some concern that Japan you know, had had really not been willing to take some of the specific actions against China that they had been hoping for, uh, which is why they weren't part of the excess capacity deal. And also that they needed to do a little bit of a better job in cleaning up their steel industry, which is why they weren't part of the climate uh, portion of this. So I think that is a disappointment. Hopefully they can work that out over time and that, you know, they can they can become a part of the broader conversation with the EU. Yeah, and I appreciate that last point about uh, the ex- excess capacity and high carbon emissions. I found that interesting as well. So another big thing I was hoping to get your take on is USTR's recent report to Congress on China. Is the report what you expected or were there any surprises in there? So it was an interesting report. I think what is probably most notable uh, about the report is that it really is one of the clearest articulations by this administration or you know really any administration including the Trump administration um, about the fact that China you know has failed to meet some stru- you know some structural commitments in the phase one deal uh, as well as the purchasing commitments and they highlighted agricultural biotechnology um, they highlighted ractopamine approvals and and so some real structural parts of the agricultural deal that USTR has now said unequivocally you know China didn't get the job done. Of course, there's also the purchasing uh, components. And then they, they made a broader statement basically saying, you know, the phase one deal was insufficient and that it didn't deal with all of the problems with China. And, you know, of course, that latter point is true. It doesn't make mean the deal wasn't useful or helpful, but I think it's a relevant point that it didn't address all of the problems with China. What was also notable about this commentary in phase one was that notwithstanding this critique, there was really no clear indication of what they were going to do next and, and how they would enforce the deal. And that is an area that we're going to have to watch closely over the next couple of weeks to see whether or not they announce some sort of enforcement action. There was a letter just this morning from Ways and Means Chairman Brady and other Republicans on the committee basically saying, you know, you need to take some action. Um, I saw an op-ed from Senator Cassidy saying the same thing. So I think you're going to see a lot of pressure now coming from the Hill and saying, "Okay, you've now said China's not meeting its commitments. So what are you going to do next? And so I think that's something to watch very closely over the next couple of weeks and whether or not, you know, there's going to be some sort of enforcement action. One possible tool to effectuate an enforcement action, of course, would be to use Section 301. That wouldn't necessarily need to lead to more tariffs. Um, there are other things they can do under Section 301, such as you know fees on on Chinese service providers, among other things. But that is you know tariffs are certainly an option. The other key takeaway here was that they outlined what I, I would call sort of their sort of three part 
you know, mechanism for dealing with China, which is they, they indicated they still want to deal with uh, China bilaterally um, and, and through the trade one deal, not with phase one deal, notwithstanding its shortcomings. Uh, number two, that they were looking for new domestic measures that they could use to go after Chinese uh, unfair practices. You know, I read that to, to, to mean things like the Brown-Portman anti-dumping and countervailing duty legislation that is being considered on the Hill right now. I think that's one of the domestic tools that they would like to have at their disposal. And then finally, they talked about you know working through plurilateral and multilateral initiatives to, to address problems with China. I think they're primarily they're referring to IPEF, uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework Agreement, which they're they're working on right now. Um, so those were the key takeaways for me from from the report. You know, and it goes beyond sort of a traditional WTO compliance report and really talked about the broader China strategy. Great. Well, like I said, it was going to be a quick update today, but Clee, I really appreciate your perspective as always. It's always a great update. Um, so we look forward to diving uh, deeper into these uh, issues on the policy call uh, next month. So really appreciate it, Clee. Sounds great. Thank you.